we can help another agency out with like oh we just closed up a complaint similar to this on that facility would you like my report and it allows us to work more collaboratively and also be aware of situations that maybe hadn't gotten reported to us welcome to the podcast pathways to safety bridges from adult protective services to community-based service for adults experiencing abuse neglect and exploitation we come to you with the goal of introducing community partners in Montana who work together to assist victims and survivors of adult experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. My name is Marianne Liu. I am your host today to meeting one of these community partners in Montana. Before we start the episode, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is supported by the Administration for Community Living, the United States Department of Health and Human Services through a 2021 Elder Justice Innovation Grant, with Montana Adult Protective Services being our primary community partner. Grantees carrying out projects under government sponsorship are encouraged to express freely their findings and conclusions. Nonetheless, our findings, conclusions, point of views, or opinions do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. Let's join our guest in the conversation. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Tara Wooten joining us. Tara, could you please start by telling us who you are, including your professional position and your role with your agency? Sure. So my name is Tara Wooten, and I am the Healthcare Facility Program Manager for the Licensure Bureau, which is part of the Office of Inspector General for DPHHS with the state of Montana. I've been in this position for about six years and been with this department or this program in general for eight and a half. And I started out as a state surveyor for licensure. I'm an LPN and yeah, that's basically me in here. So what does your agency do and who does your agency serve? My program, Healthcare Facility Licensing, is we inspect, review, and regulate all of the healthcare facilities in the state of Montana, which includes assisted livings, adult daycare, hospitals, home health hospice. There's about 13 different facilities that my program specifically regulates and inspects and licenses throughout the state. Altogether, there's probably about four to 500 facilities under my program that we license. And so really a lot of my program focuses on elder homes, long-term care, assisted living, adult daycare, retirement home. However, with licensing of hospitals and critical access hospitals, we actually serve the entire population of Montana because hospitals can serve anybody in Montana, including newborns, youth, elderly, and just middle-aged. And so Like I said, while we tend to focus and have a lot of facilities that deal with elderly care, we actually see all ages, all ranges of different kind of health care. Great. Well, then under what circumstances does your agency serve older and dependent adults who experience abuse, neglect and exploitation? So we see this in different areas within the different facilities that we regulate, assisted living, long-term care, hospice. Home health has definitely been on the rise with problems, especially with exploitation. And so when we receive complaints that involve abuse, neglect, exploitation, or licensing involvement in general, we can inspect the facility 
basically we're wide open to inspect any portion of the facility. They're required by law to give us any documentation that we ask for, and we are allowed to make copies. And we have to be given full access to the healthcare facility. So anywhere that a resident or staff can access, we have to have access to as well. And so with home health, if we need to go into the homes, we are allowed to. If we need to just do patient files, we are allowed to. Nursing homes, assisted livings, retirement homes, those areas, we, when we get a complaint that's either a licensing issue or has to do with abuse, neglect, or exploitation, we can go in and investigate. And our role is to determine whether or not the facility as a whole is protecting that resident. And if they are, if they're meeting the requirements to protect their health, safety, and welfare. And so typically the types of inspections that we do in regards to elder abuse, exploitation, really has to be facility involvement. If they're protecting the staff member that's doing it, if they are facilitating it, if they're facilitating drug diversion, if the business office is diverting money, resident funds, those types of things. Individualized people tend to not as much get investigated by our department as more of the whole facility is really our role in protecting the resident is looking at the facility as a whole. When you mentioned the home health part of what you're responsible for, like you see a lot of exploitations, do you have examples of what happens in those cases? You know, I think what we're seeing is that there's a push to keep people in the home longer, which is opening up for more home health. If it's a home health agency that's licensed by us or a personal care home that is only overviewed by the Secretary of State as a business, people feel comfortable in their home. And typically they have one or two people that come in to visit them and they become friends and they build relationships with these individuals. And it unfortunately creates an atmosphere where people can be taken advantage because they think this person is their caregiver. They'd never do them wrong. Oh, you're short on rent money this month. Let me give you some, you know, that kind of stuff. And we're seeing more of that and It's harder to prove, obviously, in those situations because there isn't something like a corporation that is managing the residents' funds that we can really track. You know, where did the money go? Is the money missing? So we rely a lot on the resident, their input and their interview and or the staff involvement and whether or not they're willing to divulge into what their workings are with that patient or that resident. But I think there's just... There's a level of trust having one or two people that you become familiar with coming and seeing you multiple times a week and you get to feel like they're family. And there's a lot of good people out there, but there's one or two bad apples that tend to unfortunately take advantage of those types of situations where, hey, I've got this person to trust me and I've been coming in, they look at me like a granddaughter. So they're not going to notice if I take their meds or If I give them a sob story, maybe they'll give me some money, you know, and typically that's what we see more in the home is the exploitation part or the drug diversion. I think it's a great thing that people are being able to stay in the home longer, but it definitely, if they don't have a strong outside advocacy support family that's involved with the home health agency that's coming in or the people that are coming in and kind of monitoring that, it just leaves a person very vulnerable that they don't have oversight from anybody else, and you've got that one-on-one interaction, so it becomes a he said, she said situation. 
Mm, I see. Okay. So how do you work with Adult Protective Services? For example, under what circumstances do you get referrals from APS or do you refer your clients to APS? So the way that we, over the years, have kind of worked it out with APS and my department, we send each other referrals back and forth all the time. Most of the referrals that we get are community-based, so they're coming from somebody out in the community, whether it be a family member, a caregiver, the resident themselves, somebody outside that knows of something going on at a facility or in somebody's home, and they file a complaint. And we don't expect them always to know which one's the right person to report to. So a lot of times APS will get reports or complaints about a facility and they're not doing this, they're not doing that. You know, the business office is not putting residents' money in the safe, they're putting it in a bank account, those types of things. And that's where we can get involved because there's licensing regulations in order for them to maintain their license that they have to follow. And we can get involved in that facility-wide issue. Now, on the flip side, we'll get a complaint that is very specific to an individual person who's abusing an individual person. We don't have any authority to do anything about individual people. We can cite facilities, but we can't bring charges or cite an individual person. And so those are the ones that get referred through APS to us because they can investigate individualized people and then take that information onwards to police departments and county attorneys to potentially have the individual person charged. So, you know, most of the time we get our own complaints, but if I get a complaint about a specific person, it goes to APS. If they get a report or a complaint about a facility issue, they refer it on to me. So beyond the referral process, is there any additional collaboration that's on, you know, during investigation? Maybe it's not just the facility, but also the individuals, like both are under investigation. Does that happen? It does. And it doesn't happen as frequent. I would say it happened more frequently before COVID that we worked a little bit more collaboratively and we did do some joint investigations. Typically, it's when it involves, I would say, an administrator or a manager of a facility that has the allegation against them, then I'm looking at how their actions affect the facility and what problems it's caused with the licensing system. And then APS is there investigating the actual administrator. And so we have different roles and obviously we have different regulations that we operate off of, but we are able to do joint investigations or at least fill each other in. Sometimes they'll go out and do an investigation on an individual person and realize, whoa, this is way more of a facility-wide issue than just this one person. And they'll call me and, you know, then it's like, hey, we'll take our part, you know, so they may have an open investigation while we do. And we don't always necessarily work hand in hand at the facility at the same time, but we'll be investigating our ends of one situation. Fascinating. Well, do you also collaborate with agencies outside of APS to serve older dependent adults who experience abuse, neglect and exploitation? If yes, who and how do you collaborate with them? We are able to, you know, I previously just thinking of a couple, we have worked with law enforcement before when there's been kind of a unsure situation on how a person would react to us coming in, or we were going to be delivering something that we were worried about. We've sent reports to law enforcement on investigative findings on a facility and they're investigating maybe the manager or the owner. They'll ask for our reports. We've received reports from them. If they've been called to a facility for a disturbance, we can 
most of the time get their reports, <laughs> depending on kind of what they're finding and stuff. We also work with attorneys. We work with the certification bureau that does the certification for the CMS funding for like long-term care facilities. We work with waiver teams. We're just starting to get back to having more of an open dialogue with what we call MAFUKU, which is the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. And so they have a new director over there that we've met with and is very interested in working collaboratively and joining, you know, group discussions on what they can do to help and what involvement they need to have with abuse, neglect, and exploitation as well. Speaking of Mufuku, could you tell us a little bit about Kloa? So I think in our previous conversations, you mentioned them, C-L-O-W-A, and how it helps work on cases of abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Sure. Kloa is a group that we kind of came up with in our different agencies. And I actually was joking with the new Mafuku director last week about how I think I probably have to change the name to CLAWEM now if we're going to add Mafuku in. But CLAWA basically stands for Certification, Licensure, Ombudsman, Waiver, APS. And it's the different agencies and we get together. We took some time off during COVID. You know, we quit doing meetings and everything kind of came to Zoom. But we've reinitiated the CLAWA meetings. We meet monthly. And basically, we discuss open cases that we have and if any of them are collaborative. So if I've got like a big complaint that I'm working on, it may need to involve APS and they may want to get involved or Mafuku or they're saying we have an open case on that facility as well. And we can start that dialogue if we're not aware or we weren't sure if they had opened up. We can kind of start that dialogue and see what they're looking into versus what we're looking into, bounce ideas off each other. You know, they can say, I interviewed this person and they had a wealth of knowledge. Like, you know, you may want to look into interviewing this person. And so it's a way for us to meet monthly, touch base, see what kind of open cases we have, anything that you know, we can help another agency out with like, oh, we just closed up a complaint similar to this on that facility. Would you like my report? And it allows us to work more collaboratively and also be aware of situations that maybe hadn't gotten reported to us. Maybe Mafuku has something that they're working on that involves one of my assisted living facilities and nobody had filed a complaint with me. So I wasn't even aware of it. So it puts it at least on my radar to follow up with them and see if licensure needs to get involved with whatever they find in their report and in their investigation. Mm -hmm. Do you have any success stories that you think either this group or with some of your other collaborators that you could share with us? You know, I think I was trying to think of this in eight years. I'm like, holy cow, how many? But one has always really stood out to me, and it was a referral that we got from APS. And it was before I took this position as the program manager, I was actually one of the surveyors. We got a pretty substantial abuse concern from APS. They had every reason to believe that they knew who the perpetrator was and they couldn't prove it. And the biggest reason that they couldn't prove it is because they felt like the upper management of the facility was protecting them and was buddy buddies with the staff member and they weren't able to get the information. So I think that probably like one of the most, 
I don't really know how to say it, but one of the, I think one of the reasons that it stands out in my mind is because it was a physical abuse case and we had pictures. Prior to going in, we had pictures of the injuries on a resident. And so I was kind of heightened at the time already because the injuries looked pretty significant. And when I actually got to the facility and went to inspect it, she was actually worse than the pictures that we had gotten. She had had another major injury in the time frame that it took me to get up there. And, you know, what we did was APS, they were able to facilitate me with like, these are the people that you need to talk to. Like, these guys know, and these are the people that we're talking to. We just can't get it proven. So I think between APS being up there and interviewing, and then we came up and I spent two days and I was there at 11 o'clock at night. I was there at four o'clock in the morning and I was there during the day interviewing all the amount of staff that I could, observing this resident, looking through incident reports of supposedly how these injuries had happened and was able to determine with enough of the investigative report, both from APS and from the staff that talked to me, we were able to substantiate that the abuse was happening by a certain staff member and we were able to determine that the administrator was protecting her. And so while I don't like to say it's success because the resident did get injured in the process and she didn't succumb to them that I know of, but her injuries were pretty severe and the abuse was bad. But within 24 hours of us exiting and basically saying we do have enough documentation here to support that we know who's doing the abuse, the facility is going to be cited repeatedly for basically not protecting the health, safety, and welfare of these residents. And our documentation is going to APS, which can then go to a conviction if they decide to take it to the county attorney. Within 24 hours of me leaving the facility, the staff member and the administrator were both termed and were removed from the property. And it just was a huge relief that I knew that at that point, the abuse was stopping we had made a difference for that resident that she was no longer going to be harmed. And that one's a big one for me. Again, I think just because I remember what the resident looked like when I walked in the door and how badly she was bruised. But I mean, I think that there's been a lot of cases between APS or Mafuku and us where we've been able to get a facility back on track and get them in compliance, whether it be that we make them change the way that they do things, the way that they report things, the way they monitor things, or between our investigation and APS, people have been removed from places of power and have not been able to hurt people or abuse them financially. And so I think we do a good job. I hope that in the future, now that we're kind of hopefully on the downhill slope of COVID and the pandemic. I hope that we are able to work more collaboratively together again and be on site together. But I'm really excited about the reinitiation of the CLAWA meetings and the addition of Mafuku into them and being able to keep that dialogue really open and work collaboratively as a big agency on how we can protect the people of Montana. That is great. It's not just the people that, you know, you stopped the abuse for, but also more potential victims and, you know, survivors down the road. And the staff. I think the staff that had their suspicions, but because they knew that this administrator was friends with the abuser, they didn't feel confident going to her and saying, 
I really think that this is happening. And I just think that, you know, there was like an air of relief. You know, we did, obviously, we did a follow-up investigation or a follow-up review on that facility, check in on the resident after the administrator and the staff member had left. And it just seemed lighter there and everything was healing on her and there wasn't anything new. And it just, I think we did good work and I think we alleviated the resident, future residents, the staff that felt really, really trapped in their position. And so I think we did a great job, but we wouldn't have known about it had APS not gotten a hold of us because obviously the staff were too scared to report to us. And so if APS hadn't given us the heads up, I'm not sure we would have been able to have the same outcome. Mm -hmm. Here. Well, the last question is about challenges. So what challenges does your agency experience in serving those who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation? And why is it difficult to work on these cases? And I think you mentioned a little bit specifically about the pandemic. So So I think pre-pandemic, we had some similar issues as to what we face now, but I think they're exaggerated now. I think that overall, you can have a great facility that has great staff, that has a great administrator, and yet there's still a fear of retaliation if you complain. If you make a big to-do about something that you feel is a big issue, but they may not, I think there's still a lot of fear of retaliation. And I think that was the case pre-COVID. However, with COVID and facilities not having the same availability for beds, We lost several facilities during COVID due to staffing issues and having to shut down. I think that fear is exaggerated even more that they could be removed if they complain or if they, you know, make an allegation against somebody that somebody will get mad at them and kick them out. The other, and I think there is a lack of confidence in residents to be able to know that they can report this and it won't get back to them and that there are rules and laws in place to safeguard them from retaliation and from unnecessary and reasons for discharge that are not appropriate. And there are those safeguards, but in order for them to know that kind of information, they either have to have investigated themselves or they have to hear it from me. And that means that they're in the reporting process when they get to me. It's not something that necessarily every administrator is going to explain to a resident. And so I think there's a lack of confidence. Like, is that really abuse? Is it really a big deal? Do I need to report it? Am I going to get in trouble if I do? I definitely think that's there. And I think it's, like I said, I think it's only been exaggerated since the COVID pandemic. I also think, you know, we deal in assisted living and skilled nursing care. We deal with dementia and Alzheimer's and other cognitive impairments and their ability to communicate and voice when they are being abused or when they're being taken advantage of, really they rely on the staff or they rely on an ombudsman or a family member or someone to advocate for them. And unfortunately, abuse typically doesn't happen out in the open for other people to see. It's usually behind a closed door late at night or, you know, in an office or something like that. And so having that advocate or those eyes for those people that really can't communicate what's happening to them, that's always a challenge. And being able to substantiate abuse and neglect with someone who is difficult to interview because of their cognitive status, it makes determining and substantiating abuse very, very difficult. I think also one of the challenges that we have is staff 
are required by Montana Code Annotated. If they work in any kind of healthcare facility, they're considered a mandated reporter and they are required by law to report abuse, neglect, and exploitation and not even confirmed, but just suspected. And we require all of our assisted living facilities specifically to train their staff in that MCA that has to do with elder abuse and DD Abuse Prevention Act. But at the same time, it's eight or 12 pages long. And so it's a long law and it goes over a lot of information. But one of the regulations in there is that if you work there, you're mandated to report to the department and to the ombudsman. What I think happens a lot of times is the direct care staff, the PCAs or the CNAs, they report to their administrator and then decide or make the determination they'll report it if it needs to be reported. And what I always tell people is that's not what the law says. The law says that if you're the suspect of it or if you suspect it, you're the one that's supposed to report it by law. And so if you want to report it to your administrator, fantastic, but it's your responsibility still to follow up and make sure that they actually reported it to the department and ombudsman. And if they didn't, then you need to. But I think there is a fear of going above your boss's head. Basically, if you call DPHHS over your boss, are you going to get retaliated against as a staff member? And we really, you know, in our trainings with providers, we really try to talk to them about, please make sure your staff understand this, that this is not a retaliation thing. This is a requirement by law. And if they knew about abuse and did not report it, they could be held accountable by fine or jail time. And it's specifically laid out there in law that they could be. And so, you know, I always tell PCAs and CNAs that call, like, if you want to report it to the administrator, that's great, but follow up with them and have them prove to you that they've called my department and that they've talked to the ombudsman. And if they can't do it because it's your responsibility. So I think trying to continue to educate people that work in these healthcare facilities about their responsibility to report and that they don't have to have confirmed proof. That's for us to do and for APS to do. But if you suspect it, report it. That's the easiest way to get us in there and get us investigating it and determining whether or not it's happening and if we need to protect this person. And so I think there's challenges in that. And I think the pandemic specifically has made those fears even more. But also I think we went through a long period of time in Montana where a lot of our facilities had outbreaks and and the guidance was to shut your doors to visitation. Don't let people in. So we didn't have the same amount of eyes in the facility and on the residents as we did previous. APS wasn't going in as frequent, ombudsmen weren't going in as frequent. We were doing desk reviews and virtual surveys if a facility was an outbreak, so we weren't on site either. And I think it was harder for residents to reach out for help. I mean, they have access to phones, but at the same time, are they comfortable saying, I want to use a phone and go take it and talk privately? I don't think we really saw everything that happened in the facilities during the pandemic, and I don't think we will ever fully know, but I do think that the potential was higher because there are routine people that usually come into facilities on a monthly or quarterly basis and check on residents and see the facility, talk to the group that's sitting in the dining room at the time and just kind of have eyes on people. And we went a really long time without that. 
And so I think there was probably times where people or residents and facilities really did want to talk or needed to voice that things were happening, but they either didn't have the means to or they just felt like nobody was there to. I hope we're out of that. I don't ever want to get back to a situation where that's our normal routine is not being on site and not seeing the residents in the facility. But I think that it was definitely challenging for staff, challenging for residents, and challenging for the department to try to do the best that we could while also, you know, trying to respect these businesses when they're being told by health departments, you're not letting people in. Like, you've got a bad outbreak. We've got to get it under control. Don't be letting people in from the community. It definitely was challenging and it was nerve wracking not being in there for that long, but we feel good now. We've been back in the facilities for about a year consistently. We were, you know, trickling in there here and there during the pandemic when it wasn't really peaked, when we knew facilities did not have outbreaks we were going in, but we've been consistently back in for about a year, a little over a year, probably since spring of 2021. And it's been good to see the residents in the facility and actually be on site and answer questions and be able to do those resident interviews again. I didn't love the pandemic for multiple reasons. I didn't like what it did for our routine and the lack of involvement we had in the facilities, but we're back to normal, I think. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that it stays that way and we don't ever have to do that kind of work around again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tara, for all the work that you and your staff do. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. This podcast was produced by Studio K Productions. Our podcast logo was designed by Meng Yuwen. We welcome your feedback. Please visit elderjustice.acl.gov to leave a comment at the bottom of the web page's Contact Us section.